Kenya Barris disastrously trades cutting social satire for rom-com pablum when a Jewish podcaster and his black fiance break up after her dad and his mom turn a wedding into a race war. That's Peter Travers of ABC News, who I've called in the past a blurb whore. Like, he is known for just praising everything. So when Peter Travers, formerly of Rolling Stone, now ABC News is crushing something, you know you're in for a treat here on You People. That's one of the new movies we're doing this week. It's currently available on Netflix. Also, I'm catching up on the Oscar nominations that I had not seen. So Causeway is currently on Apple+. Plus. I finally saw it. It came out a couple months ago. Jennifer Lawrence and the Oscar nominated Brian Tyree Henry, who is up for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, I also watched Triangle of Sadness, which is up for Best Picture and Best Director. Knocked that out of the way. And a big treat, 80 for Brady is in theaters this Friday. Collection of four legendary female icons. Rita Moreno, our personal favorite, because Chris and I love Oz. And, of course, she played the nun on Oz. Sally Field, Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda. That leads into our wild card, Bob Balaban, celebrated character actor. This guy's known for Wes Anderson movies. He was in Midnight Cowboys, worked with Woody Allen. And he's in 80 for Brady. Also, of course, Warren Littlefield on Seinfeld. He's one of those guys, I'm telling you, listener right now, if you don't know who Bob Balaban is, you do. Yeah. You just think you don't, Google him, you've seen him in a bunch of stuff. And and after you listen to this interview, you're going to love him even more. Bob was awesome. And uh, old this week, The Big Lebowski. I mentioned that because uh, Jeff Bridges won the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Critics' Choice Awards, and I thought it was fascinating. He's such a great actor. I mean, people just always go back to Lebowski. Like, he's been in movies for like 40 years, and yet Lebowski is Lebowski. That's one that stands out. So I figured... He's got to be tired of of the dude at this point. Yeah, I mean... You always wonder who's going to present him, right? Like, it's got to be somebody from his famous film. Who else? John Goodman. Goes up there, boom. Right away, we start going to do jokes. Bam, bam, bam. And then the nominations. Like, I, I imagine everyone there is just like, oh, he's going to start talking like the dude. Maybe I'll do a dude impression. Like, I'm with you. I think eventually he's like, okay, like, I got it. Awesome movie. Yeah. Proud of it. But I've, I've done some other things. 25th anniversary of the film I love and many of you love. That is called The Big Lebowski. I uh, hope you enjoyed last week's episode. We talked about hustle. Talked about the good nurse. Um, Natural Born Killers. I forgot to read a couple of blurbs here. So I love, back to Peter Travers, formerly Rolling Stone. What he said about Natural Born Killers, this is one of my all-time favorite movies, and I put Oliver Stone on my list of best directors ever, right along with Stanley Kubrick and Janet Maslam of New York Times. As a satirist, Stone's an elephant ballerina. I also like Ty Burr's review of The Good Nurse. It's watchable the way a long magazine article on the subject is readable. Creepy, but oddly leached of drama. If you missed it, last week's episode had those reviews and others. And of course, always support the Dan Levitard Show, Chris and my friends. I forgot to mention a couple weeks ago, it's one of my favorite Levitard moments ever. Vince Wilfork on the show. If you didn't see it, Dan started the interview by raving about Vince and his relationship with his wife. Then things went sideways. And my boy Cody caught a bit of friendly fire. They thought maybe, you know, could have been some, some more research done. But I, I'm with you. I, Dan, Dan went rogue. That wasn't like on Wikipedia. He's known for this. Dan was like, oh, I know this about him. We're going to go in that direction. Yeah. That's why, like, I, I wasn't actually in for that interview. I might have been recording with you. I did the research yeah, yeah. for it, and then they did the interview. And I just remember being – whenever something bad happens in an interview, I start to panic that it was my fault because I do the interview research. Yeah. So it's always a panic when there's an awkward moment. But it's one of those things that ends up – that that clip, oh. like, got – hundreds of thousands of views so it's like a mistake that we make in an interview turns out to make it a good interview and what's great about you guys is you don't shy away from it anybody else makes that mistake and you just quickly move on you guys make the mistake Stu Gatz follows up there's another question about it interview ends there's a 10 minute dissection of the question Cody's research how this happened where could this have gone wrong we replay it we replay his correcting Dan (laughs) that didn't work out I think he said like that one didn't work out (laughs) 
he, he was so gentle with Dan. But, but Dan was, was so he's like, man, you you were just your love of your wife is just like so passionate. We've talked about her. Like this doesn't happen from athletes. You're so in love with her. You're so enamored. It's, it's amazing to see. You know where does this stem from? Well, well actually, I got a new wife now. I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> it, what a response. And it, and it really and Dan thinking he's that is just because like one time someone said something about his wife and he defended his wife. So yeah. you do that one time, and in Dan's mind, you are now the epitome of marriage. <laughs> he's just like, oh well, uh. That did not. I'm turning into John Skipper all of a sudden. I have Vince Wolfric. Uh, I did not. That did not work out. Uh. It was not. It was not to my fancy. It, it was not to, as I had imagined it would be. But holy matrimony has not eluded me. I have found a second wife. That's how John Dan LeBetard. <laughs> Dan LeBetard. Dan LeBetard. Uh, I had mentioned last week before we get into the movies that I was in Montreal last weekend. So, uh, Chris, you ever been to Montreal or no? I don't think it. Uh, yeah, for a bachelor party. Well, that, there you mm-hmm. go. I, I, why else would I be in Montreal? Why else did Chris go bachelor party? I was going to say it's it's specific Torontonians and my boy Sunil Thackle Karen, who is getting married, and it was his 50th birthday as well on Sunday. Bachelor party for guys in Toronto if they're going to Montreal. The fact that you were a Florida guy, Miami guy, and even you know Montreal bachelor party scene. I honestly didn't know until a friend of mine, hey, I'm doing it. We're going. And it was one of those things where I was invited. Like, I wasn't even in the wedding. It was just like, Chris is a fun guy. We should bring him on this bachelor party. Like, I was, it was like all the groomsmen and me on this bachelor party. <laughs> this is some of my closest friends and Chris Cody just happens yes. to be here. <laughs> is he here because he's on the Dan Levitard show? Maybe. You always wonder, like, who's the one that makes the last cut? Like, there were 16 of us there. And, like, Sonny's my guy. Like, I, I know I'm making the cup. But you're looking around going, like, oh, I didn't know he was that close to that guy. Like, okay, that guy, he's known yeah. a long time. That guy, I'm like, oh, okay, well. But yeah. we had a blast. I mean, Montreal, again, I, I love the, the French language, the French culture, everything about it. I mean, growing up in Canada, it's just nice to hear it, be around it. And, uh, you know, I'm able to kind of decipher what's happening. My, my kids are always like, oh, do you, do you know what they're saying and stuff? I'm like, yeah. I go, I, no, not a lot of it, but I can, I can you know, pick up a grade nine French. I can get the, the rudimentary phrases, so to speak. But the food is just to, to die for. And... I mean, the smoked meat poutine, for those who are unaware, like that's the first thing. You go there, Montreal's known for their smoked meat, and poutine is French fries with gravy and cheese curds. I mean, it's a lot of calories, but it's incredible. I, I mean, oh, I love you. I mean, I, I don't even know if I had the smoked meat one. You give me just the classic. Yes. It's delicious. No, you're right. There's definitely the classic poutine, but the smoked meat I had was just to die for. Oh. And then, um, of course, they're, they're all huge Leafs fans. So the, the big event was Leafs-Habs, Montreal Canadiens and the Toronto Maple Leafs. But I had checked the schedule. My man, John Chick, who does not like hockey at all and loves football and loves the Bills, he had texted like two weeks before. He's like, bro, there's a pretty good chance either your Bills or my Eagles are going to be playing. So I we paid $159 Canadian to sit row 435 of the Bell Center. Now, there's not a bad seat there. Like This is like going to, I don't know. Section, row 4 or no, section No, no, section like 435. <laughs> Way up oh, top. Yes. So Adnan Verk of NHL yes. Network sitting up yes. in the uh... <laughs> six rows from after. By the way, Jeff Gorton, who is the president of the Montreal Canadiens, I worked with briefly at NHL Network. So to your point, I was kind of like, I should just text Gortz, like, hey, man, can you hook me up? But I'm like, no, because the Eagles were playing at 815. So those guys, there's like eight guys in one section, four in one section, and me and Ciccone, who couldn't, he couldn't get a lot of hockey. We're like six rows from the top. We watched the first period, five minutes into the second period. By the way, a ton of Leaf fans. I'm like, man, these, these Toronto fans travel. Yeah. I got them in Montreal. It's like 80%, especially where I was, Leaf fans. Go, Leafs, go. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my God. Leaf. Uh, so we're going to go. So I'm, I'm asking, a sports bar. There's a sports bar in the Bell Center. I'm not sure if it's like that in Florida where the Panthers play, but yeah. like you can just go to the sports bar. I'm thinking I have to bribe the French waiter to put the game on. But no, he had a little TV on 
Eagles give it the bar. I go, beautiful. So big screens are all Habsleys, but little screen Eagles. We throttle the Giants, which was awesome. And I can still hear the, the Habs, and the Munchwalk goes back to win. Amazing scene all around. I'm like, now, if I was a superstitious type to bring this to movies, Robert De Niro in Silver Linings Playbook, of course, Uber Eagles fan, always has to have the same Eagles thing in his hand, has to watch the same place. So this past weekend, I had booked the weekend off, again, a month in advance. I'm like, hey, just in case, want to make sure I'm off. Eagles Niners NFC Championship game. I go, I really should go to Montreal. I should go sit in the <laughs> oh, cage. Wow, that would have been a right? lot. Like, look, look at the superstition. Keep this thing going. But thankfully, that was not necessary. Eagles throttle the Niners. Now I have to figure out a way to get to the Super Bowl. With four kids, it's a challenge because it's like two of them are into it, especially my son Shaz is really into it. He's six. And then a couple of my kids are not into it. So the first question immediately is, hey, are you going to go to the Super Bowl? And I'm like, well, let me just check. Again, I did book the weekend off. I was like, just in case. Do you want to guess a ticket, cheapest ticket for the Super Bowl I could find? Uh, and this is early on, too, because I imagine as we get closer, prices might come down. Uh, if you if you're saying it's a lot of two thousand dollars, so my thought process was this: yeah. probably five hundred bucks for a flight to Arizona, two fifty night for a hotel, thousand bucks, and I could probably get the cheapest ticket possible, thousand bucks, two grand yeah. to go see my team in a Super Bowl. Now, if I want to bring one of my kids, okay, now that's four thousand, six thousand, it's just insane. But I like, maybe I'll look into it. Cheapest ticket, $5,000. What? <laughs> what? Like, I'm on TickPick.com, which people tell me is the StubHub minus the fees. And and they even rank how good the deal is. Like, they'll put A-plus deal, 7500 but you're two rows back. This is like C-plus. Like, you're way the hell up there, $5,000. I'm like, what sick person in it? You know they're going to sell it. Of course, there's, there's some guy in the Philly area right now listening. Oh, five grand, that's a steal. I, I, I should do that. Five grand for upper deck is a lot. Like, if, if I'm paying five grand and it's like best seat in the house, maybe, but like. And, and that geez. goes to our point. You as a Dolphins fan, if the Dolphins were in the Super Bowl, because even if people are like, you know, go, I go, oh, I'm going. I'm right. Going. Like, you would do it no matter what. Now, Philly, when there was, that game was in Minnesota, and I really want to be with my kids. Like, Yusuf is really starting to get into it. I go, no, I don't want to be away from it. I want to watch it together. We watched it together. It was awesome. Now, Shaz is really into it. I'd rather watch it with Shaz and not go. But if I had no kids, if I was single, like, I'm pretty sure Nagani just hightailed it. He was like, I'm going to, I'm going to Minnesota. I think he definitely worked his connections. Schefter hooked him up, whatever. Boom. Go see the Eagles. But I, my point is this. If your daughter's big into the Dolphins, she's really young. What till she's like seven or eight? Would you just completely be like, yeah, no problem. I'm going. I'm, I'm going to leave. Or do you want to bring her along for the ride? That's the question. You. I mean, I think I would be in theory beforehand, like I'm taking her. We're going, and then when I saw five thousand is the minimum price, I would be like, let's evaluate. <laughs> let's let's see. Is she going to remember this? You know, how old are the kids? Uh, 14, 11, 6, and four. So he's just my eldest. And 11, like, he's into it, two. but yeah. he's not like crazy about it. Like you think he'd be like into it. Like when he was like. Five years ago, we were going nuts. He was watching it like casually. I'm like, bro, like, I'm going nuts. And Shaz is six. He's going crazy. But to your point, is he going to remember as a six-year-old kid? Maybe you just leave the kids back and you go with a buddy that can pay for his own ticket. No, I, I, listen, I've been texting my Eagles fans, and they're all kind of saying the same thing. Like, listen, maybe we just ditch the kids and we just go and just get after it. The other idea, and I think maybe I think this is actually a pretty good idea. You may laugh at me. My wife's like, really? I go, I live two hours in Philadelphia. I think I should just go to Philly. Find a sports bar and take two of my kids who are really into it and just spend all day in a Philadelphia sports bar with all Eagles fans around us. Like, that's still a pretty that cool thing. That is true. That is cool. That is the next best option. You should do that. Yeah. That would at least be be around all the Eagles fans and stuff. Is there an Eagles bar around your area? Well, that's what I was wondering. But, of course, we're 25 minutes from East Rutherford, New Jersey, so it's a lot of Giants fans. But that may be even yeah. better. Like, I, I, to your point, I have enough Eagles fans that I know. I'm like, hey, let's go invade uh, our local sports bar. I'm like... But it, there's got to be in New York and Jersey, Correct. like a Dolphins bar, yes, a yes, Giants yes. bar, an Eagles bar. That is true. In yeah. New York, there's always one of those things. You're right. That's like there's a Steelers, there's this big Steelers bar right near my house. Really? That every Sunday, like 
packed with Steelers fans. Because that's this is, you know, you're saving me on the travel. I just go right to New York and I find the Eagles bar in New York. Because you're right, there's a lot of Philadelphia transplants in New York. So for sure, there's Eagles bars in New York. That's actually the way to go. All right, you're saving me money big time. I love this. Uh, <laughs> let, let's get into some football talk, though. Chris and I both. By the way, Cody's never been more prepared for an episode this week. He watched 80 for Brady. He's a part of the Bob Balban interview and first ever time here on Cinephile. Chris saw a new film which I have not seen. That is you people, which I avoided like the plague. We'll get to it in a second. And hopefully, Cody's going to tell me I should check it out. We'll see. But 80 for Brady, let's kick it off. A group of friends made it their lifelong mission to go to the Super Bowl and meet NFL superstar Tom Brady. Again, I mentioned the cavalcade of stars. I mean, if you look at female talent of a certain generation, I'm like, listen, Sally Field, Oscar winner, Norma Ray, you love me, you really love me. Moreno, obviously, we love. West Side Story won an Academy Award. And again, the aforementioned Oz, Lily Tomlin, always so funny. And Jane Fonda. But it's based on a true story of four women, I don't know if they're quite septuagenarians or octogenarians in this case, but huge Tom Brady fans want to make a road trip to go see Brady. Remember when this got announced, you're like, is that really going to be a movie? I'm like, yeah, it is. And it's got star power. And Harry Hamlin plays the old handsome NFL player. Sarah Gilbert shows up from Roseanne and uh, the aforementioned Bob Balaban, who you'll be hearing from momentarily. Tom Brady is in the film. Got a couple scenes. I think he'll grade his acting as... Average, subpar. I mean, he's playing himself. It's a couple scenes. He's handsome. Gronkowski, the one scene which you've all seen in the trailer, it's not more than that. You just see him. He's kind of funny. Again, he's playing Gronk. But overall, as a film, I thought somebody nailed it when they said it's like Golden Girls meets Girls Trip. Like it's, you know, four women on the road going to go check out Tom Brady. Not particularly funny. Not particularly heartwarming or sincere. But a fairly average, predictable road movie. I think if you love those actresses or you like that storyline, you, you go for it. But I can't imagine the Adnan Burks and Chris Cody's. This film was geared towards us. It was corny. Don't watch it, people. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm just being honest. I mean, if you're a real football fan, if you're a Patriots fan, yeah. it's nostalgia. You'll probably like it. But if you're not a Pats fan, it's pretty corny. I think that's a succinct review we were looking for. The one surprise <laughs> from it is Kyle Marvin directed it. When I saw that name, I wasn't sure. You'll hear Balaban in a second. He was responsible, him and Michael Angelo Cavino, for film two years ago. I had his number two of the year. It's called The Climb, which is a great comedy. Those guys did. So when I was watching, I go, that can't be the same Kyle Marvin. But Bob Balaban said, yes, indeed. So those guys took an indie movie and all of a sudden transformed it into their next job, which was 80 for Brady. So clearly these guys are talented. I look forward to other projects from Kyle Marvin and Michael Angelo Cavino. And I'd rather watch other great films these actresses have done Norma Ray, Shortcuts, lots of others in the past. That's 80 for Brady opening in theaters this Friday. How about Chris Cody gives us a little you people. What do you got? I'll give the synopsis first. Sorry. Follows a new couple and their families who find themselves examining modern love and family dynamics amidst clashing cultures, societal expectations, and generational differences. It's directed by Kenya Barris, co-written by Jonah Hill. Go ahead. So I put Jonah Hill in this Paul Rudd, Seth Rogen, Jason Siegel. If they do basically anything, I'm going to check it out. So I had to watch this movie. It was on Netflix. Eddie Murphy. You can only imagine how much Netflix paid to get Eddie Murphy in a movie because that guy doesn't do anything anymore. But uh, it had all the ingredients, a good cast, a lot of cameos, uh, Mike Epps, Andrew Schultz. There's a lot of good cameos in here. There are some funny moments, but overall, it is very ham-handed. It is about like a caricature. You know, Julie, Julie Louis-Dreyfus plays the Jewish mom who just doesn't know how to talk to black people at all. Eddie Murphy plays the, the guy who doesn't trust white people at all. I know that these are true things in our society, but they play these things to the most extremes. Like, uh, the way Julie Louis-Dreyfus is, like, talking around Jonah Hill's black fiancé is so cringe. And I know that's what they're going for, but it's just, like, she would never do this in real life. It's just so ham-handed. 
with, uh, you know, all the stereotypes of stuff. And it just, I don't know. It just, it kind of missed me. There are some funny moments, but overall, not for me, Clive. Oh, man. That, that's, that is disappointing. Because you're right. With that kind of talent involved, like, those are some big names. Like, I, I'm thinking, like I said, worth the price of admission. Eddie Murphy, Julia Louis-Dreyfus going to give us something. But cringe is what you're going with. It's just, she's just like, she's just very, like, ha- it's so ham-handed with, like, we get it. Julia Lee Dreyfus is going to make the the black fiance in, in uncomfortable. Eddie Murphy is going to make the Jewish Jonah Hill uncomfortable. It's just so ham-handed with where they're going. And then they try to have a, a shocking ending because the whole time you're like, they're obviously going to end up together. And then they try to shock you with an ending and then it ends up right where you thought it was. It's just save your time. Not for me. No, I love it because you're saving me some time here. I'm like, with that, that kind of star power involved, I'm like, all right, we're going to get after this here. But you people... And like I said, once I saw the initial reviews, 45% from the critics and 42% from the audience. So nobody's saying this is a particularly good film. And when it drops in January like this, it's bad to see. A couple of reviews from 80 for Brady and uh, you people. Peter DeBruge of Variety, 80 for Brady. A pleasant enough reminder that these gals are still game for a good time. Sherry Linden of Hollywood Reporter, 80 for Brady isn't a for the ages score setter, but it makes the goal when it counts. And M.N. Miller, ready, steady, cut. The combination of lightweight writing and heavy, ham-fisted delivery is too distracting to be truly enjoyable. I'll give it to me, beliefs. And also you people, Barry Hertz at Globe and Mail. The familiar and facile elements are drowned out often and loudly by the impeccable comedic talents of Hill and Murphy, two performers whose very different styles clash and complement one another. All right, so Barry's in on it. Peter Travers, I already read you. How about Richard Roper? Love him, right? Roper and Ebers. Yeah. Sinks under the weight of its obviousness and a consistently heavy-handed approach, despite the sometimes stylish and well-paced direction from Kenya Bears, an incredibly talented cast. Let's move on to Causeway. Uh, a U.S. soldier suffers a traumatic brain injury while fighting in Afghanistan and struggles to adjust to life back home. It stars Jennifer Lawrence. In some ways, a comeback performance, and it really goes back to her roots. You forget J-Law made her name first with Winter's Bone. Independent film came back in 2010, later won the Academy Awards, Silver Linings Playbook. Second shout-out to that film, starring Bradley Cooper, who was at the Eagles game, sitting next to Jeffrey Lurie. And after that, Jennifer Lawrence has kind of been up and down. Got Oscar nominated for Joy, which I thought was a very average movie. I hated American Hustle. That got... Uh, no, no, that's Amy Adams. But um, she was in, obviously, the Marvel movies and X-Men stuff. Like, she's kind of taking a bit of a detour here. Jennifer Lawrence, I think, was thought to be the next big thing. And she's still, no doubt about it, a great actress. But hasn't really made the kind of films that people were expecting. So, listen, Hunger Games made a ton of money. Passengers was a bomb. Mother was terrible. Red Sparrow made some money, I suppose. Uh, Don't Look Up was Academy Award nominee. Our buddy uh, Adam McCabe got mixed reviews. So this really kind of signals a way for it, I think, to kind of go back to that Winter's Bone type model. Um, Independent film, small movie, and she's playing a really tough character. It is as it sounds. She comes back from the war and the first 10 minutes or so is just her in rehab. She's in like a, you know, veterans hospital and she's trying to regain movement and it's, it's sad to see. Literally, she can't move her arms. She's partially paralyzed, trying to regain her speech. But eventually, she's able to, to get back to it a little bit. Uh, some scenes with her mom, speaking cringeworthy, because she doesn't really seem to be as empathetic as you would think if your daughter is in the war and not coming home struggling. But eventually, she goes, takes the car in to get fixed, and it's Brian Tyree Henry, who, as I mentioned before, is a really good actor. He was the best part of Bullet Train. I know people love him in Atlanta. Uh, he plays James, the mechanic. So he's like, yeah, I'll take care of the car for it, blah, blah, blah. They get to strike up a friendship, and you're not sure. Is he like her? Does she like him? Are they just friends? Whatever. So they're hanging out a little bit, and it turns out he's got his own demons and stuff that he is trying to deal with. He is not a U.S. soldier, but he has a tragedy from his past that he is uh, burned away with deep pain and 
really, he's just a character just mired in self-loathing and self-disgust and smoking, drinking beer, trying to forget about life. But uh, Byron Tyree Henry is fantastic in the movie. And uh, the scene where he starts telling her about the incident and his own trauma and what happened is, is fantastic. It's worth the price of admission. But the great Owen Gleiberman of Variety, here's a blur, but I'll tell you the rest of his review. By the end, the film delivers you to a place that feels real. But we have to travel through a zone of fairly arid desolation to get there. His review was great. He said, this is almost like a subgenre of movie. The independent movie, static camera, small budget, big movie star, non-glammed up. He's like, you know, you've seen the movies before. You know, whether it's Charlize Theron and Monster, uh, the music, the way it's done is a certain way. It kind of gives you that hopeful tinge that things are better, even though things look dark and gritty. Um, so, it, it, Monster's Ball? Yeah, no, I was thinking of Monster. But Monster's Ball is another example. You're right, Halle Berry, that, good, dolled yeah. up, down, gritty, prison film, yeah. serious, intense, overcoming trauma, anguish. <laughs> it was a really yep. funny review. He was like, you know, you think these independent movies are original, but they're, they're following a playbook as well. Like, that there's an exact way you're going to follow the story. So, not to crush it, but it also feels very familiar if you watch enough movies like that. Having said that, I'd recommend it just for the performances. I'm glad Tyree Henry got nominated. Now, having seen... The one I saw last week, Eddie Redmayne, The Good Nurse, those were both dueling. I do think Brian Tyree Henry was the better performance, so I'm glad he got the nomination for Best Supporting Actor. And it's a quick film. 92 minutes, Apple Plus. If you like Jennifer Lawrence, you like Brian Tyree Henry, I would recommend it. I'll give it two and a half Maple Leafs. The great Ty Burr. The filmmakers approach the two people at the center of the tale as honest and honorable, and the actors respond in gracious kind. And Hannah Strong of Little White Lies. Causeway is a promising debut for Nugabur and a fine showcase for Lawrence and Tyree Henry's charm. One more film before we get to our old, which is The Big Lebowski, and her interview with Bob Balaban, and that film is called Triangle of Sadness. That movie is nominated for Best Picture and Best Director. The film has got rave reviews. It won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival back in May. For those that don't know, that's one of the great film festivals in the world, arguably the top one, and the Palme d'Or is the best picture. It came out in October here in America. It's grossed about $22 million so far, and the story is this. Carl and Yaya, a couple of influencers, are invited to a luxury cruise ship alongside a group of out-of-touch wealthy people. The situation takes an unexpected turn when a brutal storm hits the ship. Ten nominees, uh, thanks to Dan Skip Allen, who corrected me. Last week I said, you know, it used to be five nominees, now it's up to ten. He's like, no, it's actually a formal ten, so it's ten no matter what. In the past you've seen like seven nominees for Best Picture or eight. Now they've said it's a hard ten. So Triangle of Sadness, it feels like that and Women Talking were probably the ninth and tenth films that made the cut. And although I liked elements of it, I'm a little surprised it's, it's up for Best Picture. Um, the first scene is quite funny. Those two characters are talking back and forth uh, Cheribi Dean Creek, who shockingly is now dead. Horrible. Like watching the film, I was like, wait, she died last August. She was born in Cape Town, South Africa back in 1990, passed away last summer. The film came out in October. So died at the age of 32. She plays the lead actress role and her and Harris Dickinson. The first scene is they're arguing about the bill. Almost like a Kirby enthusiasm scene. Ten minutes of how he has to always pay the bill. She never pays the bill. Why don't you pick up the check? Blah, blah, blah. They go back and forth. A little bit of funny preamble. The next scene is on the cruise ship. You you big cruise guy or no? I love cruises. Yeah, so they're on the cruise. Now, this isn't like the cruises you and I take, like a Disney cruise type thing. This is like, you know, big, rich people sitting on the boat. Um, And they're just kind of, you know, enjoying their life. The the one guy's unbelievable, Zlako Buric, who's playing Dimitri. I mean, he looks about as Russian as it gets. I can just imagine the casting process. We need a Russian guy who's balding with big sideburns and like kind of big teeth. I'm like, yeah, that's the guy. (laughs) That guy looks about as Russian as it gets. I'm like, yep, we got (laughs) Zlatko Buric. And, And his first scene, they're having dinner. He's like... I sell shit. And they're like, I'm sorry, what do you do for a living? He's like, I sell shit. 
I sell shit. And they're like, why is it? I sell fertilizer. I'm like, ah, okay, great, great. So he's made millions apparently from selling fertilizer. And then you get to the scene. And I had heard this about Triangle of Sadness. They're like, this is not for the faint of heart. Make sure you're not eating before watching this film. Because our man Woody Harrelson shows up. This is why I reviewed Natural Born Killers last week. And Woody shows up as the captain of the ship and becomes clear that he himself is a Marxist, socialist, hates all these rich people, so it's time for his revenge. And the woman, old woman, sitting there, starts to kind of like kind of gag a little bit. Okay, give me some water. The waitress is telling her, like, no, drink, drink more. If you're starting to feel sick, it's because of seasickness. Okay, boat's rocking a little bit. Drink some more wine. Drink some more. She starts feverishly pointing. More, more, more. Blah, starts throwing up. Scene behind her, throwing up. Next one, throwing up. This film might feature... I'm going to go ahead, definitely. It definitely features the most vomit of any Best Picture nominee ever. Like, we're talking... So the movie's about a bunch of people getting seasick? A bunch of rich people who are just getting seasick and probably poisoned slash seasick because of this Marxist slash socialist is getting revenge on them for being uber rich and uber horrible. So it's a satire of these people, but I'm not kidding. We're talking like 15 straight minutes of projectile vomit. Like it's almost something <laughs> like a Farley Brothers movie. I'm like, oh my God, I got it. Then you start going to fecal matter. I'm like, oh my God, the, the, the toilet's being overrun. I'm like, ugh. So that, having said that, that middle section is probably the most entertaining part of the movie. The third part is after something happens to the boat, now they're on an island. Ultimately, I'm a little surprised, as I said, except for Best Picture. I like moments of it. I do think it's funny. Um, this whole eat the rich satire concept is interesting. But ultimately, I'm a little disappointed. I'm, I'm surprised it's a Best Picture nominee. And I'm surprised Ruben Ostlin, he squeezed out James Cameron for Best Director and the guy I love, Park Chan-wook, for Decision to Leave, which I still can't believe Decision to Leave was not nominated for Best International Film, formerly Best Foreign Film, or he didn't get nominated for Director. But... What do I know? Ruben Austin, congratulations. You can go check out Triangle of Sadness. My boy Chris Collins also watched it. He was like, yeah, way too long, two hours and 20 minutes. He's like, I, I don't need this much going after the same plot. One thought on the Oscars before we get to Big Lebowski. Uh, six more weeks until the Oscars. Chris and I still hoping to go, pull some strings. But there's been a really fascinating subplot. I mentioned last week one of the big shocks, the biggest shock, was Amanda Risebro getting nominated for Best Actress. Now that I've seen Triangle of Sadness and Causeway, I've seen every single nominee for Best Picture, Best Director, Actor, Supporting Actor, Supporting Actress, Original Screenplay, Adapted Screenplay. I'm missing one in Best Actress, and that is Andrea Riseborough. So this film is called To Leslie. It cost $100,000. Think of this backstory again now. Um, what she did, apparently, she called tons of members of the Academy's Actors Branch, begging them to see the Little Watch alcoholic drama and post online about Rose's performance. The result, dozens of influential stars. Gwyneth Paltrow, Jennifer Aniston, Howard, it just says in here, so I'm not sure which Howard that is. Maybe it's Terrence Howard. Kate Blanchett, Howard, Amy Adams, Howard Ed Stern. Norton, <laughs> and many more sang her praises and helped win the coveted nomination. But the shock nom has created a brewing shitstorm within the Academy because Risebro seemingly pushed out two actresses of color, Viola Davis, the woman king, and Danielle Deadwater of Till, who I think it's a crime she didn't get nominated. Two actresses of color that were backed by well-funded campaigns by Sony and MGM slash Amazon, respectively, and were widely predicted to score honors, yet presumably do not have access to a network of powerful, let's be honest, white, rich movie stars. So the Academy's investigating. I don't know what that means, but... Thanks to Claire Atkins, by the way, sent that my way. So I don't, I don't know what that means, but they're, they're looking at it, whether or not Risebro or her, her company did something wrong here. It's going to be raised at a board of governors meeting. So I, I can't imagine, once the nomination comes out, that'd be, that'd be kind of shocking. I don't think I've ever seen that. Someone gets nominated and they take the nomination away and then nominate somebody else. I, I can't see that happening, but it is a shame. Ultimately, I haven't seen the film. I really want to see it. I hope it's great. 
but it is a shame, particularly Danielle Deadwater for Till. Like, Viola Davis is a great actress. I like The Woman King. I don't have an issue with her not being nominated. But Danielle Deadwater and Till, like, that is a great, searing performance. The fact that Anna de Armas for Blonde and Andrea Risebrook for Two Leslie both beat her out, that, that definitely is uh, it's something that's frustrating. But I'm looking to try to find Two Leslie wherever I can. Hopefully, it'll be playing in a theater near me. All right. So when The Big Lebowski came out, it was amazing. The Coen brothers at this point had been these, you know, I wouldn't quite say cult movie hits, but they made these movies that weren't seen by a wide audience, but movie lovers love them. So um, Raising Arizona, I think, was definitely a popular film. Nicolas Cage, Snatching Babies, you know, felt like a, a Roadrunner cartoon, definitely popular and funny. Blood Simple, their first film, film noir, played well in the festival circuit. Again, well-liked by movie people. Then they really kind of hit the mainstream with Fargo, which is, again, one of my all-time favorite movies. I love Fargo. That came out in 1996. Then they got recognition. The Coen brothers won the Oscar for screenplay. Frances McDormand, who's Joel Coen's wife, won the Best Actress Academy Award. William H. Macy got an Oscar nomination. So Fargo, they hit it big. What are they going to do next? And then they made The Big Lebowski. And I remember when Lebowski came out, I remember this very specifically. I was in second year of college and going to see it with my friends and thinking, okay, it's a good movie. It's funny. But like, man, they went from Fargo, which you felt was a massive, important, funny film that, as Gene Siskel has said, literally included like almost every genre ever. And then made this movie about a stoner. Like it's just a guy who's high all the time and it's kind of like a Raymond Chandler movie. And the reviews kind of pointed out to that. The Big Lebowski got 79% Rotten Tomatoes reviews at the time. 93% audience score, but I think that was over time. The, the, the general feeling was when you saw it, good movie, funny movie, a little scattered, but ultimately not one of the Coen brothers' best. And then there became this surge. And this is the importance back then of the late 90s of home video. This movie came out March 6th of 1998. So 25 years now, The Big Lebowski. People started watching it and all of a sudden it became this eminently quotable film. So much so now, as I said, Bridges is known for the dude above all else. This is a guy who was Oscar nominated for Starman. I mean, he's the son of Lloyd Bridges, for God's sakes. Like he's made Tucker the man in his dream. Um, He's in The Old Man now, which has kind of resuscitated his career even further after overcoming cancer. He won an Academy Award for Crazy Heart. He's in Tron Legacy, True Grit. And yet, I, I, wherever he goes, it's, it's the dude. It's the Big Lebowski. And it's amazing because it's such an iconic and such a funny character. And it's why it's so important that I think you got to watch a film more than once. Because again, seeing it the first time, I thought it was funny. I enjoyed it. Wasn't sure if they needed two moments where they had like musical sequences. But movie made $46 million. Like that's nowhere near a huge hit. That's just like, all right, comedy, did pretty good. And over time, anywhere John Goodman goes, people are telling him to talk about Donnie and Buscemi, Julianne Moore. Totoro is unbelievable as Jesus. Totoro is so good in that cameo, he had another film followed up, which Chris liked and I hated, called The Jesus Rules. But like, <laughs> like a five-minute scene as Jesus Cantani. You don't F with the Jesus. This guy's unbelievable, wearing a pink jumpsuit, playing a kitty diddler. Like, like how does this happen? Sam Elliott, amazing, with the mustache and the sarsaparilla. Tara Reid, playing Bunny Lebowski. I'll suck your cock for $50. And you see Philip Seymour Hoffman's reaction. <laughs> well, like Philip Seymour Hoffman, one of the great actors of all time. He just gets like a cameo in this movie. This cast alone is remarkable, but it is such a funny movie. David Thewlis as Knox Harrington, uh, playing a nihilist. John Polito is great in the film. Ben Gazzara, Peter Stamari. I mean, it's, it's a who's who of terrific character actors. And ultimately, it just shows how inspired the Coen brothers are. They take a guy who is the ultimate stoner dude, who just wants to bowl and get high, and they put him in this Raymond Chandler-type plot. The story, if you don't know it, ultimate L.A. slacker Jeff the Dude Lebowski, mistaken for a millionaire of the same name, seeks restitution for a rug 
Yeah, they really tied the room together. Ruined by debt collectors enlisting his bowling buddies for help while trying to find the millionaire's missing wife. I mean, John Goodman, you don't bowl on Shabbos. The fact that Donnie never speaks, Buscemi, just like a silent character. That whole scene with Maude when Julianne Moore shows up, just bizarre. But bizarrely funny, The Big Lebowski is now one of those films that, to me at least, if you're talking with a bunch of guys and someone says the dude abides, everyone knows what you're talking about, right? The dude, El Duderino, Anne Hornaday, Baltimore Sun, Tim Kirchner's favorite film critic. Presumably the brothers just want to have a little fun after the grandeur and gravitas of Fargo. Exactly. But The Big Lebowski winds up crushing the audience under the constant pressure of its own vapidity, invective, and volume level. I'm telling you, the critics were not kind of this film. They, they, they definitely took some shots at it. Destin Thompson, Washington Post, with their inspired absurdist taste for weird, peculiar Americana, the Coens have defined and mastered their own bizarre subgenre. No one does it like them. And it almost goes without saying... No one does it better. Fantastic. The Big Lebowski, 25th anniversary coming out literally two months from now. Now it's time for that character actor you know and love, Bob Balaban. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, we discussed 80 for Brady earlier, and now it's a pleasure to bring in one of the actors from that film. His name is Bob Balaban. He has been in so many movies over the years, and has been such a terrific actor for so long. It's a pleasure to have him here on the podcast. Bob, it's amazing. If I start going through your credits, it's, it's unreal, but I, I will get into 80 for Brady, and obviously the Christopher Guest comedies, Wes Anderson, Midnight Cowboy, but we'll begin with, with 80 for Brady, a really fun football movie. It's like Golden Girls meets Girls Trip, and it, just a wonderful cast, and you get the plum roll playing Sally Field's husband. Tell me about playing alongside Sally Field. I've worked with Sally three times over the last 50 years. When Sally and I were about 22 or 23 years old, she had just finished being the flying nun and other people, other sort of unworthy of her wonderful talents. And she was just becoming a serious actor. And that was about 50 years ago. And then about 25 years later, we did Absence of Malice together. And then 25 years later, we did this. So <laughs> if we make it to 100, we'll be doing it again. <laughs> Can I just well, jump in real fast, Adnan, and say that my dad was an extra in Absence of Malice. I believe that was record that was shot in Miami. Yes, it was Miami all in Florida. At at the Miami Herald building and my dad was a young writer at the time and we're just we're keeping this small world theme going as we get going here and the other small world is when we were shooting absence of malice in a court scene one of the court courtrooms upstairs was my uncle's courtroom but he was in Las Vegas at the time with his girlfriend so I didn't get to see him <laughs> 
a family affair, though, in more ways than one. Yeah. How about the rest of the yeah. cast? Have you ever worked with Rita Moreno or Lily Tomlin or Jane Fonda? I directed Rita Moreno in a series called Oz, mm, yes. where she was a kind of tough head of, a, of, of one of the roughest hospitals or yeah. one of the roughest uh, jails anybody's ever seen. Great show. Yeah, Tom Fontana. Which was which was so unlike her to be this toughy, but she can do anything, and I love her, and we had a great time. And I met Lily Tomlin when I was in college at NYU. She was a waitress next door in a restaurant. We got to know each other. I saw her do some of her comedy, and I was like, this woman is going to become the biggest person there ever was. And the, and I'd never worked with Jane Fonda, but I've run into her a bunch of times, and therefore I know it's sort of probably cliche to say this, but they're four of the most talented, also nicest outgoing people I know. And I saw I saw them on a talk show recently talking about the, the movie. And it was the fun, it was the most adorable four people being together, being friends, being funny, being silly. And the movie's great. Oh, it's fantastic. I'm glad you got to be able to, to spend time with them. And like you said, continue your relationship with them. It, it's interesting. You know, obviously, it's a football movie. It, it's geared, I think, to lots of different audiences. I think people will appreciate those actors. I think people will like Tom Brady. I think people will like football. For yourself, Chicago guy, I'm assuming you're a Bears fan. What's the level of your fandom? In uh, football, it's not much. I'm, I'm interested in a lot of other things. But I have a very sort of a bad background in football. When I was in high school, it was a tiny little high school in Chicago that I went to called Chicago Latin School. And every male had to be on the football team or else they couldn't have had a football team. And I'm, I'm a really good runner, but I, I probably weighed about 89 pounds at the time. It was about four foot 11. And I, I, the ball came in my direction. I was terrified. I grabbed the ball and I started to run and everybody started screaming at me and I got all excited. In the end, it turned out, I had scored a touchdown for the other team. I had run in the wrong direction. <laughs> so ever since then, I've been sort of toxic about football. And my character, I don't know if you saw this thing yet, but my character has no interest in football whatsoever and is very disappointed that his wife is going away because he's very dependent on her, and that's that's the situation. So fie on football, yeah. but I don't really mean that. No, of course. And it, it, those are hilarious scenes when you're calling oh. Sally, again, for people when they see the movie, when you're like, hey, which one do you like better, one or two? Like, I'm just, you know, it's important to me. Let me know, weigh in. I know you're enjoying your girls' trip here, but help me out here. There's a real art, I think, Bob, to plan these characters. Sometimes, you, you know, there's a real... Like that meek, kind of mild-mannered character. Why do you think you're able to tap into those characters so well? Well, I either end up being meek and mild, or I end up being a vicious villain. <laughs> there's, with me, there's, there's no middle thing. When I'm in a play, it can be more more complicated, but I tend to fall into one category or the other. I don't know. Yeah. But also the, the director-writers of, of this thing, Michael Cavino and Kyle Marvin, mm -hmm. I had... I, something that they did a couple years ago called The Climb. If you never saw oh. it, run out and try to find Hysterical. it. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And when I had read the script for the movie, I liked it, but I had no idea what humor and what joy and what friendship was included in it. And a, a good part of that is that the, well, a great part of that is that the actors know how to fill these parts beautifully. But the director's have an innate ability to know where to shoot, how to shoot, what to change, how to work something. They're great at it, and they don't 
they don't beat around the bush. They just tell you, and it's a wonderful way to work. I love The Climb. I had it as one of my favorite movies of that year. It's a hysterical comedy, beautifully shot, as you know, these amazing tracking shots. And that's why it's, I'm glad you brought that up, because when I saw the name Michael Cavino, it's such an unusual name. It's Michael Angelo Cavino is his full name. And I've interviewed yeah. him and Kyle Marvin after The Climb came out. They're both great guys. So I'm glad you mentioned uh, their affiliation with this well, movie as well. I'm glad I wasn't named Michelangelo, because it's very hard to live up to that. <laughs> exactly. How dare his parents give him that kind of, uh, those expectations. All right, Christopher Guest Comedies, Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, A Mighty Wind for Your Consideration. I've interviewed Christopher Guest before and met him, and he's wonderful. He's he's very kind and very sincere. But it was funny. We were speaking, and he goes, you know, I don't watch a lot of other comedies. He's a very serious guy. Like, he loves documentaries and cares about the art form. And he makes, I'm, I'm amazed he's willing to talk to you. Yeah, you're right. He, he's not. <laughs> very uh, shy. Yeah, absolutely. He's not someone, someone who's eager to go yapping to anybody about his career. But I love those movies and those performances. Just tell me what, what it's like working with those ensembles, the ad-libbing, uh, the chemistry, all that kind of stuff. Well, it's not called ad-libbing. It's just called talking <laughs> because there's no script. There's a very loose outline of what's happening in each scene. And every once in a while, Christopher will think of a joke and put it in the outline. But basically, from the time he says roll, you do whatever you want to do, and then he says cut, and then you can do it over again. He can talk to you about it. He can change it a little bit. But he has no idea what you're going to say or what you're going to do, except he knows what the scene's about and what has to happen. It's both terrifying and unbelievably freeing, and I love doing it, and I would work with him on anything at any point in any way. We met each other in a movie called Girlfriends that my friend Claudia Wilde directed 40 years ago. And he and I were the boyfriends to the two girlfriends. And we got to be friends. And I so trusted him that I let him ride. I, I rode on his motorcycle in the end of, in the, end of the shooting, holding on to him for dear life because I'm terrified of motorcycles. And I trusted him so much. If I would trust him to ride a motorcycle with him, I would trust him to direct me on anything. <laughs> That's amazing. Those movies are so funny, as are the films of Wes Anderson. You've been in Moonrise Kingdom, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Isle of Dogs, and The French Dispatch. How did you get to know Wes Anderson? Did you also ride a motorcycle with him? I only knew him because I knew his movies and I loved him. And he called me one day and he said, do you want to do this? And I said, yes. And we came together about a week before major shooting began, because my part was mostly alone, walking around having soliloquies. And he gently but firmly sort of taught me how to be a narrator without really telling me anything except showing me stuff and being very careful about it. And it's amazing what he can transmit in two words. And I immediately knew what to do because I had come in with all sorts of preconceived ideas. And he showed me a picture of himself standing as the narrator and I went, oh, I know what to do. And he knew just how to tell me without actually telling me, which is a great trick that directors, wonderful directors, are able to do sometimes. Bob, I watched 80 for Brady last night, and I'm wondering if you in your real life, like your character, have ever left the house for work without pants on. <laughs> no, but I've, I've almost been on a Zoom call without my pants on. But that's not quite the same thing. Stand up during Zoom calls because it's dangerous. Same. That is also true. Um, we talked to the author of this great book about Midnight Cowboy. His name escapes me. I'll look it up and I'll, and I'll circle back. But yeah, somebody just sent the book to me. Yeah, and, and he, uh, there's a great section there. For those that don't know, Bob Balban's been making movies a long time. But one of your earliest films was in Midnight Cowboy, 1969. And I know the author interviewed yes. you, and there's sections in there. And again, if you haven't seen the movie, go watch the movie. But if you haven't, that, that role, Bob, that's not something like 
the mild-mannered and meek are going to be doing. You're soliciting John Voight. I believe in this in the book, you told the story that, like, I, I, I couldn't tell my parents that I got this role playing this, you know, gay hustler. Like, I, I, Glenn Frankel was the author. Thank you, Chris. So just tell me about Midnight yeah, Cowboy in that the role. Hustler, but I turned out to be the hustler. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah, right. You weren't going to pay up. Tell me about Midnight Cowboy, one of the great films of the 60s. Well, when I got the job, I was playing Linus and You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, off-Broadway. So, so I was this innocent five-year-old who carried a blanket. And in the audition, we had to improvise for about 15 minutes, him wanting to take my watch away because he, I couldn't pay him for me going down on him. I had no money, it turned out. And he tried to steal my watch. And I was like, no, my parents will notice something happened. And it was over. And he's, I, I loved improvising with John. I had no idea he could do it. And I had just come from the second city in Chicago, where when I was in high school, I did a teenage workshop where these sort of mind your ability to improvise, which, of course, children can do much more easily. And I left and I called home and I said, I think I got a job, Mom. And she said, what is it? I said, I'm really not sure. It might be a television series. <laughs> I'm not sure. And I looked back on it and I went, how could I have thought giving somebody a blowjob in a movie theater could be on a television series <laughs> in 1969 or 68 or when he, whenever it happened? But it didn't really phase them. I don't think they were overjoyed about it. But, but you know, they were grown up and it was a job. Yeah, it ended up being a film that won Best Picture. So everything ended up working out well. By the way, there's a documentary about it now. I don't know if it's playing yet. Oh about the making of it, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, I definitely look forward to seeing it. Glenn Frankel's book was definitely terrific. Now we'll get to what my brother would know you best for, which is Seinfeld. Uh, the great, great series and the episodes where you're playing the executive, I just keep flashing back to when George is explaining to you what this show is that he and Jerry are pitching. It's a show about nothing and your quizzical expression on your face. How much fun was that playing around with Seinfeld and Jason Alexander? It was great to be with the people. It was great to be with Larry David. I hadn't seen the show because it was in the first season, and it was number 89, I think, on the, on, the, on the list of good shows. And I was on the last episode or something. And I came back, and my life, you know, after my little part, I did it, and I went around. Then they said, well, we'd like you to come back in a couple of months in the fall. And I came back in the fall. They had changed the, the show from Thursday night at 4 to, like, Friday night at 5, something like that. And suddenly it was number three on the charts, and then it became number one. And this time when I came back from doing my little part in, in the play, I couldn't walk across the street without 20 cars screeching to a heart and going, Russell, Russell, Russell. <laughs> it, it's the magic of television is making good things but putting them on at the right time and the right date. Yeah, I couldn't imagine being with Larry and those guys, as you said, when they were able to hit that moment. I also love, again, speaking of TV work, The Late Shift. I think you played Warren Littlefield, that great film about Leno and Letterman and when Late Night went haywire. Well, I was actually playing Warren Littlefield on the TV series as well, but my character was called Russell Dalrymple, but Warren Littlefield was the head of NBC, so I was really playing him again. And he said when I went to do the movie, which he had nothing to do with because it was HBO, he said, I just want to warn you about one thing. And I, I was kind of scared because I had a scene where I was actually sitting on a toilet and I thought, oh, he's, he may have read the script. Maybe I'm not supposed to. You know, I seem to wind up in bathrooms all the time. <laughs> and he said to me, my one thing is, no matter how much the budget is, nobody ever wears good ties in television. I want here's some ties. He gave me a box of like $100 ties. 
And he said, wear these ties because I want to be known as a person who wears good ties. <laughs> and he was, I talked to him all the time still. Oh, that's great. I love that Warren Littlefield had a sense of humor about it. And as you said, was very helpful yeah. about it as well. Uh, a couple more for you, then we'll let you go, Bob. I, Capote is a film I haven't seen in some time, but God, Phil Seymour Hoffman, one of the great actors of all time, won an Academy Award for that performance. What can you tell me about Capote, specifically Seymour Hoffman? Well, the interesting thing is, is the brilliant director knew enough about directing to write a, help write a great script. But he also knew what was important was Truman Capote, and, and, and that was what the most important thing was. And whenever we needed to stop or do something, he would work with, with the man playing Truman over and over and over again. And I thought, he's spending all this time on the actor. Why isn't he doing me? Why isn't he doing the rest of the things? Then I went and saw the movie, and I thought, because he made Truman Capote be one of the better compelling jobs of an actor inhabiting a part than I've ever seen. And he knew just what counted. I think it was Bennett Miller was the director, so that, that's pretty cool. He was able to be that attached. Uh, again, you did so many things. You also co-authored Spielberg, Truffaut and Me, an actor's diary with Steven Spielberg. Spielberg, of course, has made The Fablemans. He's still as prolific as ever, 75 years of age, nominated for Best Director and Best Original Screenplay. Tell me about that book and Spielberg and Truffaut. Well, I was going back. I was about 30, and I had, I had never graduated, and my wife was pregnant, and she said, you've got to get a degree in something. If you want to have a child, it will be a terrible example for your child. So I went back to NYU, and they gave me some kind of social studies essay I had to write that had to be very long, and I did social stratification on a film set because I had just finished doing Close Encounters of the Third Kind. With Truffaut, of course. Yeah. So I took all the names out of it, and I handed it as a treatise on who, who got better treatment depending on what their jobs were and how it worked. And it was about stratification. It was all very fancy. Right. I went to a party. There were a couple of columnists. They wrote about it in the, in the paper. And I got a call from a famous publisher who said, if you can write this book in two weeks, you have a book because we so enjoy what it's about and you tell all the stories. They, I, I had, they had no idea that it wasn't really a diary. I sat down for two weeks, went on a subway every day, wrote down everything I could remember from the movie about Close Encounters of the Third Kind, what it was, what the date was, who I met, what I did, how I talked to him. Yeah. And a lot of it's about Truffaut. And then when I got there, I just spoke my notes. Somebody typed it up. And in two weeks, we had a book, which I, I, I'm lucky I, it was coherent, much less it's still sort of being published. And I'm actually about to work on a, ser on a series in France, if it comes through, about Francois Truffaut, and the, the book is a, a basis for part of, the, part of the story. Wow. Yeah, Close Encounters, The Third Kind Diary, and also co-authoring Spielberg, Truffaut, and Me, an actor's diary with Steven Spielberg. You've also written, I believe, Bob, six children's novels featuring a bionic dog named McGrowl? Yes, good, good work. Do you have a bionic dog? <laughs> I don't, but one of my kids loves dog then man, you don't, then which you is have a series to read of the books. books to see what it's like. <laughs> okay. it's Jack of all trades. Well, <laughs> and you know the rest of that phrase, <laughs> master of none. So I had a really good time writing the books. I loved it. And it was sort of based on my childhood when I was always wanting a dog. And my mother would say, you know, if you get a dog, you'll never take care of it. You can't have a dog. You can't have a dog. My, my daughter did the same thing. So in the book, I made it be, what would it be that you would have to take in a dog for your child and it would be if the dog saved your child's life you'd have to take him in and that's the premise of the book and it worked very nicely and we sold a couple hundred we sold a couple of million copies wow. of that thing and it was great fun to write and i love dogs whether they're real or not now you talked about directing oz you're obviously acting 80 for brady writing children's books which creative outlet do you and have you enjoyed the most in your career hard to answer I enjoyed a play called The Exonerated very much. It's not really a play. It's 
every word, word in it was spoken by the person playing the part. And it's about people who are wrongfully convicted. And that was one of the more meaningful things that I did that I really enjoyed. And I dug in and I loved the people. And I've done a lot. Close Encounters was one of the most fun movies I'd ever worked on, specifically because of Stephen and Richard Dreyfus, who people mistook me for. And at one point, there was a, there was a threat. He was his life was threatened, but he had shaved his beard and stopped wearing glasses for it. And Stephen said, "Oh, I don't want it, Richard and you to get confused. So you have to grow a beard and you have to go and you have to wear glasses." <laughs> and everybody on the set thought I was Richard. And there was a threat against his life. And I went to Julia Phillips, the producer, and I said, uh, Julia, Richard has about 10 bodyguards. Can I have a couple of bodyguards? Because there's this big march happening, and the Ku Klux Klan is marching in it, and they threatened to kill him. Jeez. She said, no, I can't do without Richard, but I can't do without you, so you don't get a bodyguard. <laughs> He's got 10. Can I get two? Seriously. <laughs> oh, man. So I went home and nobody noticed and I came back after the weekend and nobody got killed, which is good. <laughs> Always a good thing when nobody gets killed. Bob Alban, 80 for Brady and just an incredible career. Like I said, the films of Christopher Guest, those comedies, the comedies of Wes Anderson. We talked Close Encounters, Midnight Cowboy, Deconstructing Harry. We didn't talk about Woody, Woody Allen, of course, Capote on stage, children's novels and an author. It's just great, great stuff. Bob, congrats on what has been a remarkable career, a prolific career. Really appreciate your time. Well, I'm still drawing and you were a lovely interview and I thank you. <laughs> Good man, Bob. Thank you so much. You mentioned after, we should have asked Bob, like, what's the film or role that you're most recognized for? Because he must be that guy. When people see him, they go, oh, you're that guy. I don't know which one. There's so many that it's just like, even when we were, like, before the interview, I'm like, who the hell's Bob Balaban? And then you look him up, it's like, oh, my God, he was in this and this yeah. and that. Oz, man, that was a throwback, the Oz talk. Yeah, the fact he directed an episode of Oz, that, that was amazing. i got to look up that episode now because uh, you and I are both definitely big Oz fans. Thanks to Bob Balaban. Thanks to 84 Brady. Uh, lots of great films coming down the pike. Lots of great stories coming down. Uh, like I said, Chris and I are doing our best trying to get the Oscars. So keep it locked right here on Cinephile. Go to Apple Podcasts. You can rate and review. Appreciate all the support, and we'll see you at the movies.